Hello, everyone. I'm Fabrice, and welcome to Fabulous Destinies. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the latest woman to join the infamous 27 Club, the age at which geniuses are tragically consumed by fame. She was the last soul diva we knew in the 2000s. Her name? Amy Winehouse, from artistic genius to physical destruction, discover her tragic destiny. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. With 12 million albums sold worldwide, five Grammy Awards, and heart-wrenching performances, the global music scene still mourns the absence of Amy Winehouse. It's not her untimely demise that makes her an icon, but rather her undeniable talent and irresistible voice. We still long for her presence today, knowing that she was about to collaborate with the greatest musicians. Soul, jazz, hip-hop. She drew inspiration from these influences from a young age. Her father sang Sinatra, and the music of crooners was a constant background in her home. In her middle-class suburb in North London, she lived with her older brother, Alex, and her mother, Janice. Her father, Mitch, lived just a few meters away, and despite the divorce, he maintained a very close relationship with young Amy. Amy was a whirlwind in the house, a hurricane as her mother called her. She oscillated between great joy and intense anger, playing like a little girl with her goldfish, Lennon and McCartney, and singing with a diva's voice she already possessed. When she performed Alanis Morissette's hit, Ironic, at a school event, everyone was captivated. On that day, all the parents approached Mitch and Janice, urging them to do something with their daughter's extraordinary talent. It was indeed extraordinary and innate because she taught herself music alone in her room. With Dinah Washington's records for vibes and Billie Holiday's for rhythm, it was only natural that at the age of 10, she formed a band with her childhood friend, Juliet Ashby. They called themselves the Sweet and Sour. They took their project very seriously, and although they never released an album, this first step undoubtedly influenced Amy's career. At age 12, her parents enrolled her in the prestigious Sylvia Young Theatre School. Music then became her primary purpose in life. At 16, the school offered her the opportunity to perform on stage with a jazz big band, the National New Jazz Orchestra, and soon enough, she was invited to London clubs every Saturday night. However, this school was highly academic, and Amy's fiery temperament already overflowed. Determined, outspoken, and eccentric in her style, she was expelled from the institution. But instead, she decided to delve even deeper into the music she loved, combining rap and jazz. After school, Amy was able to rely on the support of James Tyler, her boyfriend at the time. Unbeknownst to her, he decided to send a demo tape to Simon Fuller, one of the greatest British producers. He was blown away by the potential of the young singer and brought her to the studio. She had a few minutes to convince him and started singing a composition of her acoustic guitar. Initially intimidated, 
As soon as her voice resonated, a completely different Amy took up the space. Fuller was so convinced by her performance that he decided to produce her. She was 19 years old, it was 2002, and she was on the brink of her first hits. And success came quickly with the release of Frank on October 20, 2003. For Amy, the dream came true just as she had imagined. The album reflects her, blending jazz, rhythm and blues with a modern touch. Everything is hers, lyrics, music, arrangements, and that's probably why it exudes such sincerity, but also a disillusioned and caustic spirit. The album is praised by critics, but not quite embraced by the general public yet. However, during her first tour in England, genuine enthusiasm takes hold. Amy impresses even more on stage than in the studio. This young woman, simultaneously retro and modern, fascinates. She willingly embraces the game, appearing on TV shows and giving interviews. Amy is living the dream and asks for nothing more. But a meeting was going to change her life. She meets music video director Blake Fielder Seville on a set in early 2005, and it's love at first sight. He is the man of her life, she knows it. And from that day on, everything she does is for him. When she sings, it's for him. When she writes, it's through him. Her love overflows, especially because he is a man of excess in all aspects, drugs, alcohol. Amy is then pulled into his booze parties and soon into hard drugs. Videos of her start circulating on the internet, showing Amy spiraling out of control, deep into addiction. With Blake, it's a love-hate relationship, and the drugs get the better of their common sense and nerves. But the worst is yet to come when Blake decides to go back to his girlfriend after a few months. The shock of this sudden separation is devastating for the singer. She is desperate, wounded, and feels abandoned. It is in this period of doubt that she meets producer Mark Ronson. He is the providential man, the savior. She goes with him to the studio in the United States, and in just a few days she composes the album Back to Black. The record becomes her outlet, expressing the darkness of her breakup, the nostalgia of her childhood, and the cynicism of her failed loves. The album is a resounding success and reveals her to the general public, who is unanimously moved by Amy's authenticity. The title track, Back to Black, becomes the anthem of her heartbreak. The record crosses borders, and the dream continues. However, this success is still not what matters most in Amy's life. In secret, she reunites with Blake. The couple plunges back into a dark whirlwind of love and destruction. They impulsively marry in 2007. Amy had managed to get back on track, but unfortunately, the same pattern repeats itself. The singer develops an obsessive and almost pathological dependence on her husband. In addition to the professional pressure, the touring schedule, and the paparazzi delighting in her escapades, Amy faces additional challenges. Tabloids read headlines like, Amy and Blake drunk outside a pub, Amy and Blake doing cocaine. Her mental and physical health wavers, even though she is at the peak of her fame. 
One evening, a violent fight erupts between Blake and her bartender. Blake ends up in prison after the incident. Amy spirals into depression. Unable to perform on stage anymore, she decides to disappear from the public eye for three months in the Caribbean. Gradually, she rebuilds herself, forgets about Blake, and distances herself from drugs. However, returning to London and immediately resuming the tour plunge her back into her addictions. At the same time, from the depths of his prison cell, Blake files for divorce. Amy's entourage sees the separation as a liberation for the singer. But all she sees is an abyss. She isolates herself and begins her descent into hell. Despite being in no condition to do so, she delivers performances that are far from her usual self. She leaves concerts while being booed, sometimes not even finishing them or canceling them at the last minute. In the spring of 2011, however, a major European tour is scheduled. Poland, Italy, Austria. In Belgrade on June 18th, during the first concert of the tour, some spectators capture the scene on video. Amy is unable to hide her state. Her voice is hoarse. Her steps are unsteady. Her eyes are vacant. She can't remember her lyrics and constantly tugs at her miniskirt, uncomfortable. Following this one concert, the tour is canceled, but Amy wants to fight back. She wants to get through it, to sing again and live. She embarks on a period of total abstinence. She manages to stay sober for three weeks. On July 20th, she leaves her apartment in Camden Town, her beloved neighborhood in London, to listen to her goddaughter Dionne Broomfield's concert, her young protege. After the show, she can't resist and indulges in rounds of gin and Red Bull. Then she returns to her seclusion. The next day, her mother visits and finds her a bit lost, but this state was all too familiar. Her doctor also comes to see her, finds her tipsy, and gives her a few pills to combat anxiety. And as night approaches, she spends it alone again with her bottles. During this final night, she drinks without stopping and she sends a distressing text message to her friend, Christian Marr. I'll be here forever. What about you? It's 3 a.m. on the morning of July 23, 2011. She falls asleep, intoxicated by alcohol, with two bottles of vodka on the floor. The next morning, around 10 a.m., her bodyguard finds her still asleep, but he isn't concerned. She has experienced many hangovers before. In the early afternoon, he goes back to her room, suddenly worried about her silence. Amy? No response. He opens the door and approaches her. Amy? He discovers the lifeless singer in her sheets. It was an enormous dose of alcohol that plunged her into this deadly coma. She was 27 years old. An entire country mourns. The whole world mourns. Thousands of people come to pay their respects at her doorstep. Flowers, letters, drawings flood the sidewalk. The prodigious child is fallen. However, her legacy will live on through her albums, especially the posthumous release Lioness, Hidden Treasures, composed of originals and covers. Her life was as brief as her deep-seated anxieties were unfathomable. A slow, long suicide, punctuated by fleeting moments of joy and blazing successes.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Fabulous Destinies. Feel free to share with us stories that you would like to hear on your favorite listening platform or via Baba Bam's Instagram or Twitter page. We'll be happy to discover them.